Well, you can make your way to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And if you're familiar with Scripture, and by the way, as Mark mentioned uh, in the beginning of our service, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's fine. If, if you had a bulletin, you were handed one. When you walked in, just flip that over. We're only going to talk about eight verses this morning. Or if you have a device, you can flip and scroll and uh, upload an app, whatever you need to do to follow along with us in God's Word. Those of you who are familiar with God's Word may be thinking in your mind, Revelation chapter 1, doesn't that talk about end times? Doesn't that talk about heaven and new heavens and the new earth? Um, it does. And you also may be thinking, does he know what I know? <laughs> today's, today's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. What are we going to do uh, going to a passage that talks about heaven? Well, I hope to make that plain to connect what's in this passage with the resurrection, because I've found this to be the case. I've been a pastor for a long time, and usually people who come to your church on Sunday morning on Easter, they're not doubting that the resurrection happened most of the time. There may be some people that came there, they just kind of straggled in, and and maybe you're here this morning, that's okay. There will be something for you as well, but most of the people that come to church on Easter already have a belief in the resurrection. What they're curious about is, what does that really mean? How does that intersect with my life? How does that cultivate hope? How does that strengthen me? How does that do what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? How does that make me steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord? How do those two things mix together? Well, I hope to show you that this morning. I wrote a paper in seminary. It's a great way to start a sermon, isn't it? You're already bored. I wrote a paper in seminary because I had a class on a subject called eschatology. That's a 25-cent word that means the study of end times, okay? It was a class every seminary student had to take to graduate. To pass, you had to take this class and study heaven, hell, the rapture, the new heavens, the new earth. Everyone took it. And listen, this was one of the last theology classes I took in seminary. And I got to be honest, I was tired. I was tired, and there was a huge assignment that was looming in the horizon at the end of this class. You had to write this massive we call it academic research paper on heaven, okay, that nobody really wanted to write. I loved to write, but I was so over the academic research paper. I was done. I was ready to cash in my library card and call it quits on any research in the future. I was so tired. It was, the long, it was a long five-year stretch of seminary training. I was ready to hang up my pen and my laptop. So I went to my professor, and I said, look, not trying to be lazy here, but you and I both know I'm going to write this academic paper. I'm going to spend hours researching this in the library, and three people are going to read this thing, me, you, and my wife, if I can bribe her. And you're not going to read it to be helped and encouraged. You're going to read it to find mistakes, and you're going to give me a grade, and then that's going to take five years off my life. How about this, prof? Can I please do this? I don't care what kind of grade you give me. Do I have your permission to write not an academic paper on heaven, but a paper that will be practical and useful, that will be written at a, on a layperson's level, that I can actually use someday when I graduate here and, Lord willing, find a church. I'll have something in my hands that I can actually use to encourage myself and to help people. And to my everlasting delight and surprise, he said, yes, you can. And it better be good, Clayton. <laughs> now, we'll talk about my grade in another sermon on that paper, okay? But I want to tell you this. That's the most exciting project that I ever did in seminary. I had the most fun. I was reading people um, who had a biblical perspective on heaven. I wasn't reading the people that supposedly went there and came back and are willing to tell you all about it for $9.99. I didn't read those kinds of people. 
I read the people that had a biblically informed understanding of what heaven was going to be like. And I got to tell you, man, I was so surprised and amazed. My faith was strengthened. I was actually excited to think about and long for and dream about heaven, what it would be like. And one of the things that I discovered when I was reading was this passage in Revelation chapter 21. And it blew my mind. Because growing up, nobody's fault but my own, I don't know why, but I always envisioned heaven, this place where fat angels uh, sat around on ethereal, wispy clouds and played these glorified harps, okay? And they hung out with other uh, disembodied spirits, and it just seemed to be so stale and ethereal and spiritual and mystical, nothing physical, nothing fun. It was a an eternal sing-along, sing-along in the sky, just one glorious choir, and I hated singing, and I didn't like playing harps, and I didn't really think much of those fat angels that you see on the back of a Hallmark card. And so for me, just for me, developing an appetite for heaven was like developing an appetite for gravel. I just, I just couldn't get excited about it, no matter how much I tried. And then I got around to reading the Bible, <laughs> about what the Bible actually says about heaven, and it blew my everlasting mind. And I wrote that paper, and I made a vow. I said, if I ever get the chance, if I ever get a church, if I ever have an opportunity with a bunch of people, I'm going to blow out of the water this false view and false conception of heaven that so many people in the American West especially have adopted. And so today I'm going to make good on my vow, okay? That's what I hope to do today. That's what I aim to do. I had a lot of questions about heaven growing up as a kid. Maybe you do too. A lot of children in here today. It wasn't so much whether or not heaven exists, but what it would be like. What are we going to do in heaven? Where is it at? What kind of people are going to be there? How long is it going to last? I had questions like that, and there are answers in Scripture. So turn with me to Revelation 21. This is one of the most powerful and yet, I think, underutilized, underused or maybe misused passages in the Bible. There's so much hope and promise here, and it's just ready to be unleashed. So let's do that. Revelation 21, we're going to read just the first eight verses. And you can follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV version. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, that word means get a load of this, pay attention, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Drink that in. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5. This is the best part of this text. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end. Those are always references to the resurrection, by the way. Anytime you see those words together. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I just want to make three points in this text, and I pray I get through all of these, okay? And just follow along. The first one may be kind of a dangerous point to make, but I want to make it because it's one of the most beautiful things about the Bible. And it's this. Our hearts long for a happy ending like this. All of our hearts. And when I say our hearts, I'm from Arkansas. It's hard for me to to get that our, not A-R-E-O-U-R. I don't necessarily just mean Christians. Of course, Christians long for this kind of happy ending. We yearn for it. We dream about it. We expect it. We're looking forward to it on the edge of our seat in this cursed world, looking for redemption, right? Full redemption. But I mean even unbelievers, even unbelievers long for this kind of happy ending, even though they deny the very power that is creating it. They still long for it. They still do. And here's what I mean. This kind of sweeping cosmic resolution, it resonates with everyone, even the people who reject Christianity. Because listen, don't we all want good to triumph over evil? Have you ever met anybody outside of a comic book villain that would deny that? We may disagree as to what that good is, okay? But we would all say that that resonates with us. Good triumphing over evil. Oppression getting swept away. Violence being gone. Death being eradicated. No more crime. No more poverty. No more famine. Who doesn't long for those things? No more 350-acre brush fires consuming Orange City. No more volcanic eruptions. No more tsunamis wiping out entire islands. None of those things. Who doesn't long for those kinds of resolutions? No more disease and death and deformity. No more pain and suffering. No more mental illness. No more violence. No more anxiety and depression. PTSD, no more SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, no more AIDS. Who doesn't long for that? Who doesn't want hospitals to no longer be a necessity? I know right now we can't, they've got nurses and doctors in here. I get it, you'd be out of a job, but you won't need that job in the new heaven and the new earth. Who wouldn't want prisons and policemen to no longer be necessary? Who wouldn't long for that? To not be woken up in the middle of the night with a helicopter hovering over your neighborhood looking for a fugitive, or sirens going off down your street, or your alarm going off because somebody opened a window or a door. Who doesn't long for that? Whether they reject Christianity or whether they accept it, everyone longs for that and yearns for that kind of happy ending. We all want it. We do. No more lying, no more killing. Those things disappear forever. No more alligators dragging children into a lake at Disney. Even the planet's turned on itself. No more wars or invasions. It's okay to think about these things, guys. We need to think of no more bombs being dropped. 
No more acts of terror and war and genocide. No more Holocaust threats. None of those things. Who doesn't long for world peace? Even unbelievers know this world isn't right. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen an agnostic or an atheist? Have you ever seen them not be angry at injustice? R.C. Sproul was doing a Q&A panel. I think he was getting aggravated. He does that sometimes in his older age. And somebody stood up and asked him a question. They said, look, my brother's an unbeliever, and I've been arguing with him about his worldview being wrong and mine being right. How do I get him to buy into Christianity? And R.C. Sproul said, he already does. Steal his wallet. (laughs) You get it? You ever met an atheist? (laughs) Think about it for a minute. No atheist wants his wallet stolen. Why? Why Why do people that reject Christianity still hate oppression and tyranny and corruption and violence? Because it's in our heart. Listen, guys, God has put eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that. It's buried so deep. We even try to cut it out. We can't. We suppress it. It pops back up. We are made in the image of God. Even though that image is distorted and marred, it's not destroyed. And that's God's gift to his fallen humanity. We can't destroy that. We mar it and deface it, but it's there. And because of that, we long for resolution. We long for peace. We don't like conflicts. Even people who reject Christianity, they lay awake at night when there's conflicts with other human beings because we know it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be a world that's corrupt and that's just covered with the slime of sin. touches everything. There's no part of God's creation that's not touched by sin. No part of it. But here's another level Um, about our longing for this that's more subtle. And follow me here. I prayed you you would get this. All this is tied into this description of heaven. It's so glorious. It's so beautiful. You may not know this, but the author of Chronicles of Narnia, one of my favorite children's books, you know who wrote that, right? C.S. Lewis. He was often accused, because he wrote so many stories for children, he was often accused of promoting confusion and fear and escapism because he wrote fairy tales. He would, he would smuggle in Christian themes into those fairy tales. He did it really well, really well. And so defend, to defend himself, Lewis wrote this essay called Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said. I know it's a long title, but this is what he said in that. He explained how the use of imaginative stories can help... He said it would steal past those watchful dragons. He called it watchful dragons, those inhibitions that paralyze us sometimes and our openness to the gospel. This is what Lewis said. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God and about Christ? He says, I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings. He's right. We all know this. And reverence itself done harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. And then he says this, But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of the stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. 
Could one not thus still pass those watchful dragons? I thought one could. That's what Lewis said. You say, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about this. We all long for this kind of, of bodily existence, and it's so imaginative here. It seems so surreal, but you know what? Children's books, maybe more than any other genre of books, I think have done the best job at, at kind of unleashing this imaginative yearnings that we have. I read a, a blog by a Christian publisher, and for the first time, he visited the Amazon bookstore that was physical. They opened one in Chicago, and he went to it. And he said one of the number one things that blew him away was that the most books contained in that warehouse were children's books. And they were books about enchanted lands, faraway places, heroes, heroines, villains, redemption, sacrifice, magical places, magical creatures. Have you ever asked yourself this, your, this question? Why are those books like the number one bestsellers? Why does a, a trilogy like Lord of the Rings, they can't even keep it stocked? Why? Why is that? Because everyone has this yearning. Those books are just skimming the circuit. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we long for that kind of thing. We do. Did you know that J.R. Tolkien, in a strange kind of way, led C.S. Lewis to Christ? Because he told him, listen, and don't get angry at me for saying this, okay? He said, Christianity is the true myth. I hope that makes sense to you. He's not saying it's a myth, it's not true. He's saying, Lewis, all these other stories... They resonate with you. You love them. You long for them. You even write stories about them. Christianity is the true myth. It's the one that gives all the others color. It's really interesting. J.R. Tolkien said this, There is no tale told that men would rather find true. Talking about the gospel. And none which so many skeptical men have accepted on, as true on its own merits. To reject it either leads to sadness or to wrath. So what is going on here? Why do all those books sell like hotcakes? Because people can't get enough. We're obsessed. God's put eternity in our hearts. You read those stories like a Lord of the Rings, and you read about a place called Rivendell, this enchanted forest where man and, and, and nature seem to be in sync. And people love that. I mean, there's people that have studied the Elvish language for crying out. What's the deal? Why are they so obsessed with that? Listen. Listen, you read about the new heaven and the new earth. It's really interesting, the parallel themes there. I'm serious. And somehow we think that's bad. We're like, oh, that's just pagan. That's not pagan. Listen, don't let people hijack God's ideas. God's the, he's the chief storyteller here. God wrote this. I think sometimes when we think about heaven, we try to imagine it, what it's going to be like using Scripture as a guide, and we feel bad as if that's somehow self-serving. It's like one day it's going to be great. We're going to be able to celebrate God's presence perfectly. And, and we're going to be able to, whatever, whatever your thing is in heaven, we're going to be able to serve or we're going to be able to just have uninhibited adventure and explore. And we're like, that's kind of selfish. No, it's not. Listen, that's God's idea. He wants you to meditate on those things. Do you realize this book, Revelation, was written to people who were undergoing intense persecution and suffering? Many of them were being sent off to the lions. And they read this, and they went with a song in their heart. Why is that? Because this builds up resilience. We know this is not the end. This is not the end. This is just the beginning because of the resurrection. It's interesting. You read this passage, and right after God makes this unprecedented promise. Look at verse 5. 
He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And look right after that. Also, he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why did he say that? Because we're so prone to doubt. He said, Look, I want you to know this is a promise you can take to the bank. By the way, Jesus said this. I don't know why in some versions it's not written in red if you're into that kind of thing. (laughs) All these descriptions are of Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's sitting on the throne. He is sitting on the throne of history with the title deed to his creation that he fought for and made a covenant with. And he said, behold, I am making all things new. You can bank on this. I'm going to make good on my promise. You can take this promise in your pocket and you can live a fruitful, productive, flourishing life. He knows we're prone to doubt that. You remember the very night before Jesus was crucified in John 14, he looked at his disciples and he said, I am going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that where I am, there you may be also. And then he said this. It sounds strange. He said, if it were not true, I would not have told you. He knows our skepticism and our doubt. That's exactly what he did the next day. He was crucified and he rose three days later from the grave. And the minute, listen, the minute Jesus Christ walked outside that tomb, that promise was assured. We had assurance that these things are true, they're yes, and they're amen in Jesus. Here's another way that we yearn for this. Look at this. This is really incredible. Look at the first verse. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Don't we yearn for things that are new? Don't we? We're obsessed with things that are new, and God knows that. He understands that. He said, this is going to be forever. Nothing's ever going to change because nothing needs to. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I've done a lot of weddings in my life, and I've got to tell you, my favorite time in a wedding is not watching the bride come down the aisle, just being honest. They're always beautiful. It's watching the face of the groom when he sees his bride for the first time. And then it's looking at the bride and seeing how lovely she is. And what a special analogy God uses here. He says, I saw this holy city coming down from heaven, prepared like a bride for her groom. You know what's interesting? We're the bride and we're a part of that city. But you should should be given pause when you read this because it says something really strange that if you're not careful, you just pass right over. You know what it says? I saw the holy city. Let's hit the pause button for a minute. Or as Jeff says, let's pull the car over. Do you find that those two words are usually mutually exclusive in our experience? You can tell the truth. Holy city? No. uh -uh. (laughs) Now, when you think of city... When you think of city, what do you think of? Yeah, it's a mess. Most cities are a mess, including the one that we're in right now because of sin. There's sin, there's corruption, there's crime, there's gang activity, there's prostitution, there's decay. Not just infrastructure, but engineering, architecture, bridges are collapsing, roads need repair, there's housing problems. There's pollution. I mean, you know, just Google the top 10 problems in a city. And there's usually all kinds of vices. And that's why you see a camera on every corner of every building. That's why you see policemen all over the place. Holy city? No, we don't, we don't think of that. And I think God's trying to broaden our imagination when he says this. I saw coming down 
from God, out of heaven, a holy city. That ought to just blow our minds. Maybe you don't even like the city and you're a country person and say, I don't know about that. Listen, there's a reason why God uses this analogy of a city. It's because you know what sin does to us? It separates us from God and it separates us from one another. And God is saying there will be a time when man will dwell together with man in unity, in harmony. There won't be any conflict. There won't be any sickness. There won't be any pain. There won't be any disease. There won't be any anger. There won't be any murder. There won't be any vice. It's amazing. All the things that God could have said, and I I was joking with my wife this week saying, just coming up with my own list, what's heaven really going to be like? You can eat raw cookie dough and not get salmonella, okay? I mean, what words would you use? You You can lick the cake batter spoon. There won't be any kale there, or maybe there will be, and it'll taste the right way. All the glories and the wonders are going to be there. And God wants us to dwell on those things and think about those things. And this is a guilt-edge guarantee. Thomas Watson said this about the resurrection and, and heaven. He said, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. That's good, isn't it? So all these stories that are just shadows of the real thing, like Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Lord of the Rings. It's going to be like Never Never Land. You can be childlike wonder, exploration, and adventure. All those things are going to be there. See, we long for that. We long for, for that kind of holy city and that kind of place. It's, it's interesting. Have, Hebrews 13, 14 says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's the holy city. You know, cities used to be a place of community. They used to be a place of refuge and rest. Not anymore. Now there are places that exploit you. There's places where you weary yourself. And God's going to change all that. There won't be any decay we tried to make cities like that, and we still try to, and we should. We try to pass laws and legislate codes, and what happens? Nobody can keep it. We tried to build a city, and, and it didn't work. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. We will build a city. We will make a name for ourselves. We will unite, and ended up in judgment. No, this city has to come down from heaven. It's not going to be built up by man. So we all long for this kind of ending. Here's point number two. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no happy ending like this. There is none. There is none. I think that the church in America, at least the circles that I've walked in for the last two decades of ministry, I think we've done a really good job at understanding redemptive history in kind of a linear way. And we've often said it like this. There's creation in the very beginning, right? And then there's fall, the fall, what sin did. And then there's redemption, forgiveness of sins, right? And we get that, creation, fall, redemption. And I think so often what we forget, what we neglect, what we undermine, what we diminish is the last one. And the Reformers did a really good job of talking about this. It's not just creation, fall, redemption. It's also restoration, We forget that. Restoration. There will be a new heavens and there will be a new earth. And God is making, even now as we speak, that verb is in the present tense. I am making all things new. We tend to think that, you know what, this thing is just so ruined and God's just going to scrap it and he's going to start over. He's going to do just what he did with the flood. 
He's just going to scrap humanity. He's going to scrap all the physical creation. It's marred by sin. It's ruined, and he's going to start all over. But that's not what the resurrection tells us, beloved. Listen, when Jesus walked out of that tomb, did he leave his body behind and start over? He didn't, did he? It was a restored, renewed body. It was a redeemed body, not just a redeemed soul. We often think of that. The resurrection shows us that what Plato... Plato was a philosopher who lived, I think, 400 years before the time of Christ. And you know what Plato taught? And people bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. He taught that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad and evil. And that the goal in life is to escape your physical body and escape this physical earth and to go and dwell into this ethereal, disembodied state where there's just spiritual things. And Christianity came along and blew that up. And it's interesting who wrote the book of Revelation, the Apostle John. He's the one that wrote the most against this kind of thing. And it was called Gnosticism by the time the Bible was written. It said all physical matter is evil. And John says, oh, no, 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 listen. God created everything in the very beginning. And what did God say? What did he pronounce and declare over his creation? Behold, it is what? Very good. With the culmination of the crown jewel, humanity, mankind, and woman, he said it's very good. And even though sin destroyed it and warped it and ruined it, listen, God is fighting for the good creation that he made. He is not going to let sin or death have the final word. He's not going to. And listen, the, rex, the resurrection is proof of that. The resurrection is proof of that, and I believe this passage lays that out. I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the beginning and the end. It is done, he says. I make all things new, not just your body, excuse me, not just your soul, and even not just your body, the whole earth. That's why you read in the Bible, we've talked about this before, you read things like, and that day the wolf will will lay down with the lamb and they will graze together. Now, that's not going to happen on this side of eternity, I can promise you that, right? Why does the Bible use language like that? A wolf and a lamb laying down together? I thought animals weren't going to be in heaven. Who told, you, who told us that? We bought it, didn't we? Now listen, your dog or your pet, your cat deceased, they may not be there, um, but animals will be in heaven, I believe that. Why? Because God created them and they're good. He's not going to let Satan and sin have the last word. He's going to restore all of his good creation And it's going to be amazing to dwell together in a holy city and at the same time a holy garden. It's going to be like a garden-like city. And the resurrection is proof of that. God is making all things new. There will be a new order. There will be a new enjoyment of God's presence. There will be a new bodily existence. And you read really not just this section of Revelation, the whole rest of the next chapter. It's laying all those things out. And I I would tell you this. I would meditate on these things. These are so encouraging, so strengthening, so helpful, especially for you children. And I'm thankful that the children are in here today because it's good for our kids to learn about these things. Amen? My kids ask more questions about heaven than anything else. And I love to talk about it. And I love to dream with them and try to imagine what it's going to be like. I mean, look at Jesus' resurrected body. He could walk through locked doors. Kids, how would you like to do that? It's said, the Bible says we will have a body like his. He could transport himself from one location to the next. Hey, maybe we can fly. I don't know. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? But the greatest thing is that there's not going to be any sin. There's not going to be any decay. Everything will be restored. 
Did you know that two-thirds of Americans believe, according to this survey, which are always strange, right? According to this one survey I read, two-thirds of Americans believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected. That's awesome. Praise God. However, those same two-thirds do not believe they will have a resurrected body like his. And I think that's tragic. I really do. I think they are holding out on this hope that's laid up for them in heaven, the Bible calls it. This is a hopeful thing to talk about. That's why I wanted to talk about it today. I haven't heard very many sermons on this passage. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven that I read. He said this, In order to get a picture of heaven, which will one day be centered on the new earth, you don't need to look up at the clouds. You simply need to look around and imagine what all this would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. Whenever we see beauty in water, wind, a flower, a deer, a man, a woman, a child, we catch a glimpse of heaven, just like the Garden of Eden. The new earth will be a place of sensory delight, breathtaking beauty, satisfying relationships, and personal joy. Drink that in. Johnny Erickson taught her. She was a quadriplegic, and she wrote a book on heaven. Listen to this. Heaven is not some never-never land of thin, ghostly shapes and clouds. No way. We shall touch and taste, rule and reign, move and run, laugh, and never have a reason to cry. Maybe years ago I assumed heaven was a misty, nebulous home for angels, but not now. I rejoice thinking about how rock-solid heaven is and how much of a home, much more so than earth, it will be. The resurrection means a new beginning for people and for the planet. All because of the resurrection. Did you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we celebrate that today, secured all those promises, all of those. You may think it's strange I'm talking about heaven today, but those things are connected, and I don't think they're emphasized enough. I don't. I was looking at a roster of some of our members in our church the other day, and I was reading some of the the ailments. There's some tremendous physical suffering that's represented in this congregation. It would blow your mind. I I just stopped listening. I didn't want anybody to be sad, but I had a whole page of just human ailments, afflictions, sufferings, diseases, mystery illnesses. Listen, guys, grab hold of this. None of those things are going to be present in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more sickness, no more pain. Listen, it says that God himself will wipe away every tear. Let me ask you a question. I know there's so many people that think, well, God's just going to fix, you know, restore the earth and then say, have at it and kind of remain separate. Listen, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He wants to dwell with us. Have you ever wiped away somebody's tear? It's kind of an awkward question. They're like, that's none of your business. (laughs) Have you? Yeah, you you probably have. Most people in here have probably wiped away somebody's tear. Now, I'll guarantee you this. You didn't do that to a stranger. Probably get slapped if you did that, right? It was somebody that was very dear to you. There was a close connection, a relationship there, intimacy, love, affection. God, one day, is going to take his hand. I believe this. And he is going to wipe away our tears, and we're not going to weep any longer. No more. There's not going to be anything that causes you to be sad. Think about all the things that disappoint you and cause you to be worried and anxious and apprehensive and sad. Now think about those things vanishing and God wiping away the last tear that you ever shed on your cheek and saying, behold, I make all things new. Because that's reality. That's the truth. We will be liberated from the bondage that sin has brought on this planet. All of us will. 
One man said, most other religions view salvation or deliverance as escape from the physical world, including our bodies. Christianity presents salvation as a transformed soul, a resurrection body, and a restored world. That's the happy ending that we all long for. Listen, all of us want to go back to the garden, really. We all long for that, don't we? We want to be in that perfect communion with God, perfect community with one another, no threats, no conflict. The animals act the way they're supposed to. We act the way we're supposed to. But we were banished, weren't we? We were kicked out forever. Do you remember the story? Adam rebelled. He sinned. He plunged all of humanity and all of the earth into sin. The Bible says all of the creation was subjected to that futility. And we're all longing for the day that we're going to be restored and everything's going to be put right. But do you remember what God did? He banished Adam and Eve and he sent them out of Eden. And there's this interesting little footnote there at the very end of Genesis 3. And it says, he stationed angels there at the opening to Eden in the east. And he gave them flaming swords that turned this way and that. That's interesting to think about that, isn't it? Kids, you ever thought about that? I'd like to go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh Uh-uh. Can't get back in that place. You can look, but you can't get back in. There's angels stationed there with flaming swords. I wonder where that entrance is at And after the flood. It's really interesting to think about. But we've always longed to go back there, but we're banished. And listen, if you try to get back in that place, you're going to get slaughtered. Because getting back into the presence of God means this, death. It means punishment. Because we alienated ourselves from God, from one another, from the planet. Nothing works right. Nothing works the right way anymore. The law of entropy is in effect, isn't it? Second law of thermodynamics. If something is left to itself, it tends toward greater and greater and more random chaos. Despite what evolution teaches. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Evolution teaches the exact opposite. The same scientists came up with that stuff. But anyway, Bobby, shout out to you, buddy. But we want to get back to the garden, but there's angels there with flaming swords. What's it going to take? Listen, somebody has to cross that barrier for us to bring us back into the presence of God. Somebody has to say, I'm going to to enter in. And it's going to mean this. It means I'm going to be slain. I'm going to be slaughtered. I'm going to have to be cut to pieces. I'm going to have to suffer this banishment that Adam and Eve deserve and that every human being deserves. This This planet is under a curse right now because of sin. We're under a cursed planet. And in order for this whole place to be restored, in order for our bodies to be restored, the planet to be restored, our souls to be restored, somebody has to step in our place and take that curse among themselves. And listen, the Bible says that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He became sin. Him, Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became a curse. He entered back into the garden. He was slain and slaughtered for us. That's so amazing, isn't it? None of this could could be possible without the resurrection. And it's even interesting. All the things we think of, we can't even imagine a resurrected body. We've watched too many Hollywood movies. The best they can do, if something comes back from the grave, it's worse, not better, right? Like Stephen King and Pet Cemetery and all the zombie apocalyptic movies and flesh hanging off. And God says, put that away. I'm making all things new. Not better, new. New. That word new is all over this passage. Well, here's the last thing. We've got to close. This happy ending is a gift. It's a gift. Look at the last part of this. 
Not only does he say in the beginning that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He wants to dwell with them and be with them. He also says this. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Did you pick up on that? Without payment. It's a gift. You don't earn this. You don't build the city. You don't join Jesus in his restoration project. He is the one that will do this. It will not get done if human beings touch this. It will be marred and stained and corrupted and polluted, just like the place we live now, just like our own hearts. God says, I will do this in my son. I will do this alone. This is not a joint effort. And he says, it will be without payment. And then look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now check this out. And children, I want you to listen to this, okay? Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So here's what we think when we read that, okay? Um, So people who aren't cowards, who aren't impure, who aren't liars, they're the ones that get to go and enjoy this new holy city, this new garden, the new heaven and new earth, right? So we reason this way, okay, so I'm going to be really good, and I'm going to be courageous. I'm not going to be a coward. I'll be courageous, and I'm going to be truthful. I won't be a liar, and I'll be pure. I won't be immoral, and I'll be faithful. I won't be false, and then God will let me in this new city, right? Because the good people get there, but that's not what it says. It's not what it says. Now, time out. The world will be a much better place if you are those things, okay? So that's good. Strive for those things, but don't count on them, okay? Because here's what the Bible says. It doesn't say the good people will enjoy this new heaven and new earth. It says the thirsty will. Big difference there. Big difference. The thirsty will. Are you thirsty? Do you hunger and do you thirst for not just a restored creation but a renewed heart? Children, maybe you're tempted to think, wow, this is amazing. Chocolate chip cookie dough without salmonella. This this sounds like a Six Flags. This this sounds like a a glorified Chuck E. Cheese. I would love to go there. I yearn for that. I long for that. But listen, I want to ask you this question. Because the thing that God most desires to recreate and make new is our hearts. It's our hearts. So do you yearn for that? Do you yearn to have a new heart that loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates and that will be able to dwell together with God? A heart that yearns to be forgiven from sin and to be made right with God? Do you thirst for that? That's what this passage is talking about. And listen, I think even a child can understand this. God says, look, entrance to this, the cover charge has been paid in full. And all who thirst may come without paying any price. The only price is you thirst for this. You hunger for this. You yearn for this. And God has paid it in full. It's done. He's the Alpha and He is the Omega. And there won't be anything that defiles, anything that stains. There won't be anything that corrupts. Because Jesus is there and He's making all things new. And that's good news for you and I, isn't it? I watched a video the other day of an old grandpa and he was colorblind. Danny, you, I have to talk to you about this eventually. I, I like to know the kind of glasses. But there was these really expensive glasses all his kids and grandkids pitched in and bought him that actually made you, if you're colorblind, see the colors that everybody else sees. And this guy was half-heartedly, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And they had all these colorful balloons. They had the place all 
You know, they, they had the most bright, vibrant colors in front of him. They had some balloons they had blown up, and they were all videoing this guy putting these glasses on. And he put these glasses on, and he, he, he took them, it took him half a second. He just wept uncontrolled. You can Google this. Be careful Googling things, okay? He was just uncontrollably weeping. He couldn't stop crying. And he put them back on, and he dropped them again. His children came over. They were all hugging, all bawling, because for the first time in this man's life, he saw what he was supposed to see, the way it was intended to be seen and enjoyed. And I really think this with all my heart. I think heaven's going to be a lot like that. I really do. I think there's, we have more spiritual disabilities than we could ever imagine. And we only have five senses that we know of. Maybe we have 500 senses. And God's going to unveil all those new senses for us to see his beauty in new and fresh ways and to enjoy what he did for us. We are his bride. You know what you do with a spouse? You enjoy them. You celebrate life with them. And that's all the things that he says about us in this new heaven and this new earth. And I want to close with this. The way the new heaven and the new earth and the presence of Christ and our bodies they're all connected together. I don't know why, but when I was a teenager, I watched this silly 1981 movie called, I think it was King Arthur or Excalibur, something like that. And I was half interested in it. And you know, it's the story of King Arthur and the, the uh, round table of the knights, whatever it's called. I forget the name of it. But the, the story is King Arthur has this amazing, um, these amazing group of men that surround him. And they had this kingdom called Camelot. And everything is wonderful. Everything is fair. He's married to uh, Guinevere, the beautiful queen of the land. And then one of his men, Lancelot, betrays him. And his wife is unfaithful to him. And this band of brothers breaks up. And the king leaves his throne. And he goes into exile. And the whole land is sick. Everything dies. Everything withers. There's a famine there's violence. They're invaded by foreign armies. The whole land is just sick. And you're watching this movie, and it just resonates with you. And you're like, man, that's what, this, that's what Earth is like. But then at the very end of the movie, one of his squires finds King Arthur. And he brings him this holy grail and revives him. And he restores him to his wife. He forgives her for being unfaithful. And then it shows King Arthur take the sword Excalibur, and he mounts he mounts his horse and he begins to gallop. I don't know why, I just remember this. This just really resonated with me. And he begins to gallop back into Camelot, back to take his throne. And as he's riding, I don't know how they did this in the 80s. Jeff Berman, this will be cool, man, to watch this, this movie. But they were able to, as he was galloping, everything went from black and white to full vibrant color. And everything that was dead and withered started to flourish and blossom. And you could see that this land being restored and being alive and being vibrant was somehow connected to this king being in his rightful kingdom on his throne and everything put right again. And I just think about that. It reminds me of heaven. The king is here. He's with his people. He has made all things new. The penalty for sin has been paid. His bride coming down out of heaven. There's a holy city. Everything is new. Everything is restored. It's going to be amazing, guys, all because of the penalty that Christ paid. And listen, we can rest assured that this is all true because of the resurrection. And that is what we celebrate today. And listen, I just wanted to give you a little glimpse. So there's a resurrection. So what? <laughs> Read Revelation 21 and 22 and know this. If you are thirsty, this new creation, guys, it starts in your heart. The Apostle Paul said, behold, if anyone is in Christ, all things are what? New. Old things pass away and new things come. Let's pray together.